Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to the seminar on helping our young people through tough questions about faith. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Laurie Schlepfer. I've been married to a local pastor, Renee Schlepfer. Uh, we just celebrated 33 years yesterday. And uh, <laughs> we've been at Twin Lakes for 26 years. That's a church just down the road in Aptos uh, on the Monterey Bay. I have been an adjunct professor at Western Seminary since about 2001. I teach comparative religions. And if you don't know what an adjunct is, it means that I'm very part-time and very underpaid. So, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I've really enjoyed doing that. I've mostly been a stay-at-home mom. I stayed home with my kids. I have three kids. Um, there's Jonathan, Elizabeth, and David. Jonathan's 29, Elizabeth 27, and David 21. So my kids are right in the heart of kind of the age group that we're going to be talking about, um, uh, kids with very tough questions about faith. They're all married. Um, Jonathan and his wife, Kelly, have two little boys, um, and our grandsons, they're Freddie and Danny, who are the delight of my life. Love that. And they live close. So I'd like to know who we have in here. How many of you are parents with children still at home? Okay, so just a few. Okay, how many of you um, are parents, but your kids are off to college? They're not necessarily, but they're kind of out of the house, but you still, you know, they're like in their 20s. Anybody in that group? A little, some of that too? Okay, how many of you are grandparents? Okay, great, a lot of grandparents here. Are there any of you who are grandparents who are raising your grandchildren? Anybody doing that? We kept Danny and Freddie for three days a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, how do those grandparents do it that are starting all over and raising their grandkids? I have incredible uh, just awe and respect for grandparents that have to do that and are, are doing that. So is anybody not in any of those categories? Anybody just, you're single, you don't, any other categories I missed? Yes, what's your... Okay, great, great. Uh, that really helps me know who's here. Um, so as we talk about helping our young people through their questions about faith, I'm going to first hit you with some really bad news, but hang on because there is some hope down the line, but we have to understand the reality of what's going on in our country and in our church communities. The bad news is that our kids are leaving the faith. Um, it's a reality. I've given you in your notes, if you didn't get my notes, by the way, they're on the back table. Uh, maybe someone could run and get a whole bunch of them and make sure that everybody has the handouts because all the resources are in there for you. Um, that link that's there uh, is compiled by Warner Wallace at Cold, Christian, uh, Cold Case Christianity. Um, dot com, and he's, he updates it all the time. It's a huge resource for you of information about what our kids are going through. It has information about co college professors and the rate of atheism among college professors versus the general public. It has research about kids that are raised in church and at what rate they're leaving the faith and the reasons they're leaving the faith, a lot of really good information. I think we cannot bury our heads in the sand about this issue that our kids are leaving the faith. So that, I'd really recommend that you um, take a look at some of that research that's been done because I'm just gonna hit the highlights of it here. 
So from a massive Pew uh, research that was done in 2015, and actually a new one just came out that reflects some research done in 2019, we know absolutely, and all the research, all the surveys confirm this, it's not just Pew, but anybody that's doing research is saying the same thing, that adults who describe themselves as Christian in this country, that number is on a very steep decline. You see these numbers here in 2007. This would be, if somebody surveyed you and said, are you a Christian, are you a Buddhist, are you an atheist, are you, you know, that 78% or a little more would say, that they were Christian. That doesn't mean that they went to church all the time or that they really had a true faith, but they would identify as Christian. That number has dropped off dramatically. In 2019, that was down to 65% of adults in this country. Adults who describe themselves as none, and let me, just, let me tell you what a nun is, because you might hear this, the rise of the nuns, and it's not N-U-N-S, it's not a convent that's taking over. It's none. And these are people who, when they go, when they're presented with the list of religions that you might be affiliated with, they say, no, I'm not affiliated with anything. I'm, I'm a nun. <laughs> they check the box, none, that they're not affiliated. So they're called the nuns sometimes, or sometimes the unaffiliated. Um, they're not predominantly atheists, although that percentage is also rising. But, um, and actually rising rapidly, but they're not predominantly atheists, the nuns. They may think of themselves as spiritual, but not religious. They don't really see themselves as part of any particular religious group, but they themselves might believe in a higher power or feel that there's some spirituality to the universe. Or they might be people that are like, you know what, I just don't even give any of that a second thought. It's just not on my radar at all. That's the nuns. And that number, as we see in the, in the research, is on a very rapid ascent in terms of how people answer survey questions about their religious affiliation. It's at 26%. I've seen surveys that actually put it much higher, more about 33%. And then when we zoom in, on young people, we get an even more um, uh, an even more dire picture of what's going on. When I talk about young people, I'm looking at young millennials, and so right now, young millennials are 25 to 29 years old. The older millennials would be 30 up to say 40 years old. Gen Z is the other group, and they are the current generation coming up right now, four to 24 years old is considered Generation Z. So this is the way sociologists sort of identify these various age groups. So when we look at adults that are in either Gen Z or millennials, we're looking at the 18 to 29-year-olds. Um, there's very interesting statistics about this group. First of all, they are far more likely to have been raised without religion at all in their homes. 22% say that they weren't related raised with any religion in their home. If you ask the same thing of a senior, uh, that would be about 3%. So it's a huge change in how people are being raised. Fewer than one in three attended religious services with their family at least weekly when growing up. So even the ones that were raised in a religious home 
um, it was not, a, a, you know, it's, it's a very low percentage that actually like went to church every week. And 36 of the, uh, 36% of 18 to 29 year olds, and I've seen this number as high as 43%. So it's, it's a very high number. Are, would consider themselves religiously unaffiliated or a nun. So if you compare that, if you look at, if you survey just seniors or if you survey the baby boomers, it's, it's much fewer that would say that they're not affiliated. So we're definitely seeing a younger generation that is coming up that is not religious, not raised religious, and um, also walking away from the religious faith that they were raised with. Just to... A question here. How many of you know this personally from something that's gone on in your own family or young people at your church that, that were raised in church that you have seen walk away from faith? Okay. All right. So at least looks like about 70% of you say, no, this is something I'm aware of because it's happened personally. It's definitely something that has happened um, in my my. You know, we're at a big church, but in my, just in my friendship group at my church, the number has just been really um, just very disheartening about kids raised in the faith that walk away. So kids were raised in a religious home. Now, some of this research that I'm going to give you here is already about, what, 13, 14 years old, but the statistics haven't changed. Wallace gives some additional research, newer research, and it's all about the same. Barna in 2006 said 66% of 20-somethings had been churched at one point during their teen years, and they're now spiritually disengaged. Uh, the Assemblies of God did a big study in 2007 and found that between 50 to 66% of their young people who attend a non-Christian public or private university will have left the faith four years after entering college. Lifeway did a research study in 2007. 70% they found of young people will leave the faith in college and only about 35% return. This is the big question about the ones that are leaving the faith. Back in the 60s, when people left the faith, often when they started having families of their own and kids of their own, they would kind of come back to church because they felt like that was something that was important in their upbringing. We don't know nor do we think that's probably going to happen to the ones that are leaving faith today, that there would be a trigger like having a family of their own that would send them back to church. Just because there are just larger and larger numbers of people that are just raising kids without any religious upbringing at all. And it's very, has been very normalized in our culture. Fuller Youth Institute in 2010 um, did a research study that said that 40 to 50% of students in youth groups, so these are kids that are in youth group every week, and they call them youth group graduates because they stay in youth group all the way through their senior year. They don't drop out as a teenager, but they struggle, 40 to 50% struggle with their faith after graduation. So Fuller Youth Institute is doing a lot of great research on this topic. You can always go to their website for more information, and it's listed in your notes as a resource. Um, one of the really interesting things about kids leaving the faith is that it used to be that really the departure would take place more after they go to college or as they become young adults, um, people would perhaps leave the faith. 
what all the research is showing is that it's younger and younger and younger that kids are leaving the faith. That um, they, they're more, more are saying, in fact, 79% of young adults who are 18 to 29 who have become unaffiliated, they report that they made this decision during their adolescent and teen years. So in other words, there might be kids that are coming along with their parents to church, but their heart is already gone. They have already left the faith in their heart. There are, for whatever reason, and we're going to talk about all the reasons that are, that are at work, but they're, they're gone in their mind, and they've already thought to themselves, when I get out on my own, I'm not doing this church thing anymore. But maybe they're forced to come. So it's becoming more and more evident that we have to start talking to our kids about their faith or our grandkids when they're younger and younger than we ever have before, starting when they're really young to start introducing um, question, you know, the concept of questions that they're going to have as they get older. So let's look at some of these reasons that the, the kids are leaving the faith. By the way, a study that uh, Warner quotes in 2019, a big study done by the Veritas Forum and another organization, they say that 35 to 42 million youths that are raised in church and are being raised in church right now will depart the faith over the next 30 years. 35 to 42 million. Uh, so there is a great challenge that the church is facing, I believe, in the coming decades. So what are the reasons that they're leaving the faith? Well, first, it's the influence of our secular culture. Um, <clears throat> Secular culture, all the emphasis in secular culture is on the here and now, right? Everything is about here and now. There's no concept of the eternal. There's no idea that you might sacrifice in this life to gain something in eternal life. There's just no, there's no transcendence. There's none of that. It's all about the here and now. And because human beings have a deep need for things like meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, hope, justice, these are all things that we long for. Secularism presents a narrative that tells us how we can have those things without God and without religion. In fact, it, the secular message says you can have those things better without God and without religion. You can have more freedom without God and, and religion. You can have you know, a sense of satisfaction because you can run your own life. These are the messages of secularism. And there's the secular messages um, completely surround us and especially surround our kids. They're growing up with constant secular messages in ads, in movies, in songs, in pop culture, on social media, in sports, social trends, the internet. It's a, there's a constant surround. They're their whole world is surrounded, especially on the coast like out here, but really the whole country in these secular messages. For example, um, our culture tells us that complete individual freedom, including the freedom to choose my own moral values, to choose everything about how I want to live my life, to even choose my own gender. No one's going to tell me my gender. I'm going to choose. I have complete individual freedom 
to decide these things for myself. The, these kind of messages, uh, that, that is a huge message of secular culture. It's really, for secular culture, it's like the ultimate important thing that you, you know, uh, live your truth, so to speak. And really, the only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. To tolerate everything is the highest ideal, right? And religions and institutions are really seen as the enemy of personal freedom. I saw a subway ad that had this song playing in the background. It says, you can do and you can say anything you want. Live your life and I'll live mine any way I want. You can have and you can take anything you want, but everything you do, just make it what you want. Anything you want, anything I want. The song is playing in the background. It's fine if you're talking about going into Subway and making a sandwich, but this song is really about life. Just make it what you want. You live yours, I'll live mine. It's about what I want in life. These kind of messages are, I, I mean, I could do a whole week seminar of just those kind of messages in our culture that our kids are just absorbing. Even in Disney, you know, you see songs like this. It's time to see, this is Elsa in the very hit movie Frozen. Every little girl grew up, that is now a teenager, grew up singing Elsa's song. And I wonder how many parents ever had a discussion with their daughter about what this song is saying, where she says, it's time to see what I can, to, can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, the, the movie eventually has a redeeming uh, story to it. But again, do we talk to our kids about the redeeming story, or do they, they just watch the movie and then and you have popcorn and then you're over? So these are constantly. In fact, I when I was babysitting my grandsons, we have a little one of those little Siri box, you know, that will you just tell it to play music and it does. So sometimes when they're there and I'm like, hey Siri, play you know Toy Story or whatever. I said, hey Siri, play kids songs. And so she said, okay, now playing, you know, family and kids radio. I'm like, great, you know, it's going to be, I don't know, Itsy Bitsy Spider or whatever. This song, I'm, this is the first song that comes on. And so I'm, I had never heard it before. I'm very attuned to lyrics. I hear lyrics, actually, before I hear music. I'm really attuned to it. So I'm listening to the, music, the, the lyrics. I'm like, what on earth? I, this is actually part of the lyrics that caught my ear. You take my inhibitions, baby, there's nothing holding me back. You take me places that tear up my reputation, manipulate my decisions. There's nothing holding me back. And it was a girl singing about a girl. And I'm like, this is on the family and kids radio? You know, I just, but our kids, they're surrounded with this message. Um, and all of the message of secularism, which we don't have time to go into, but I'll recommend a really good book that will really help you understand what secular culture is about. So, definitely the influence of secular culture, we just can't deny that it has a huge influence on our kids. Now, before we go on, I want to draw your attention to the little diagram that's in your notes there. Um, it says, volition, will, intellect, reason, and emotion, feeling. Because when I have talk to kids about why uh, they are leaving the faith or the doubts they have in, about faith, they're going to 
follow kind of this pattern right here. It's really, this is a diagram of the dimensions of a human person. Because the objections to faith and the questions about faith do not all originate in the same dimension, so to speak. There are intellectual questions that kids have. The reason, the mind, they start thinking through things that they've been taught and maybe it doesn't make sense with something else they think is true. So the questioning and the reasoning, sort of the intellectual is definitely there. But there's also, we are also, we're not just brains, right? We are also emotional people and we have um, feelings and we have responses to things we experience as we're growing up. So that's an area of our person. And then also the will, you know, our desires and what we want. So it's important when you see a young person drifting away uh, that you try to find out where really uh, the doubt, where really the problem is. It's not always just objections, to intellectual objections to the faith, although that's an, an important one. So we're going to see how the, the next three really align with these three areas. And the first is intellectual doubt. Um, these are genuine and valid questions about God and faith. We do not live in a world where there's the assumption that there is something beyond the material. And so as kids grow, they encounter like, you know, why do you believe that? And maybe they're like, yeah, I don't know why, because I was told there is a God. But maybe they say, how do we know that God exists? Um, if there is a God, how could he allow all the suffering and evil and pain that's gone on and is going on in the world? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Can we trust the Bible? You know, aren't there contradictions and errors? I've heard it's full of mistakes. How can we trust it? Hasn't science disproved God? Hasn't evolution disproved what the Bible teaches? You know, are all Christians anti-science? Um, one of my son's friends, my youngest son is 21, and a couple of years ago, um, one of his friends announced that he was no longer Christian. He was leaving the faith. And he started a blog. Um, show you. Questions to challenge the Christian worldview. And I printed it out. This is the, his initial questions uh, that he felt, <laughs> I mean, page after page, of questions that he felt put serious doubt in his mind about the Christian faith. Now, as I read this long, long list, some of them were things Christians have wrestled with for centuries. The problem of evil is not new. Christians in the Middle Ages had this question, and deep thinkers thought about this question a long time ago. So these are not new questions. Some of them um, were things I recognized, arguments I recognized right off the internet. Because one of the realities is of uh, the kids that are, you know, in Gen Z and through the millennials, they're, the way they access technology, you and I, we did not grow up this way. They are growing up with technology like it's an, it's an appendage, like it's another arm that they just have. It's like they can't even imagine a world without it. We remember the world without it. They can't even imagine it. And um, so their ability to go online and to, to look things up and to access things, and you know as well as, as me, that there's a lot of stuff out there that is, goes under the guise of information that is just out there. And so I recognized a lot of the stuff that he was getting you know, right off the internet. Um, 
So there, there are intellectual doubts. I'm not saying those doubts aren't, aren't um, valid. I think they are good questions. Uh, but are we ready to answer the intellectual doubts? So that's an important thing, intellectual doubts. But then there's also negative experience. Negative experience. There are kids that say, well, the church I grew up in, they were just against everybody and everything outside the church. They, they just, you know, everything outside the church was bad. And they were the only ones that are good. Sort of this idea, this um, kind of judgmental environment. Maybe they themselves screwed up and they were not shown a lot of grace. You know, maybe they got the message that all good Christians will be of one political party. Maybe they read that evangelicals hate gays and immigrants and they just don't want to be a part of that. So there's an emotional component now to doubt. It's not so much the intellectual questions, but they're having an emotional reaction. I don't want to be a person that hates and apparently the church hates people, and so I don't want to be a part of that. So, um, you know, you can talk about proofs for the resurrection all day long, but if the person is having emotional reaction to experiences they have had or, or conceptions they have, or just because people in churches are people that fail, if we haven't talked to our kids about the reality of that, that, we're net, that we are not people who say we're better than anybody else. It, that's a very important thing to talk about. It's, not we're, it's the better people that are gathered together on Sunday morning. It's the broken people who have found grace and mercy and God and hope that are gathered together. So there's the emotional component that goes on. Then there is willfulness. Just the struggle of the will and desires. Sometimes the bottom line that kids leave the faith is that they are rebelling. And often these kids, for them, them, there's something that's known in psychology as cognitive dissonance. So they know that the Bible teaches, you know, that, that you shouldn't sleep around. Now they're in college and they're really intrigued by the whole hookup culture. But to participate in that and yet still believe that it's wrong causes... Uh, they call it dissonance. It's like hearing chords on a piano that don't go together, and eventually something has to give. And either they say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus, or they say, you know what, this is more fun, I'm going to go this way. Um, so, you know, maybe they want to sleep with their girlfriend or boyfriend, or they, they want to party, or they want to try, you know, smoking marijuana or whatever, and there's dissonance, you know, that either they're going to conquer those desires or they, they get rid of what's telling them not to do it. And so they might say, well, I just decided the Bible isn't all as it's cracked up to be. They may even say, well, I have all these intellectual objections, <laughs> but really underneath it all, it really is a matter of willfulness and, and wanting to do, you know, wanting, I want to move in with my girlfriend. And so if that's not, you know, okay, then I will get rid of what's telling me it's not okay. So that is the willfulness. That's the, the part of our will. Um, and then also, I would say another reason is they, they come to see faith as irrelevant. That it's irrelevant. I mean, life as a teen and a young adult is exciting. There's all these new adventures 
there's friends, there's college, there's romance, and sometimes they just don't see what God has to do, or they really don't want God to have to do with any of that. You know, they kind of want to explore it on their own. And frankly, um, many young people uh, in this country from Christian backgrounds are launching into adulthood without an articulate, transforming faith. There was a fascinating study done by Christian Smith. He's a really interesting sociologist. He's written some great books, but one he wrote with Melinda Denton, it was called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This was done maybe about 10 years ago. And their research showed that the majority of teenagers are incredibly articulate about their faith. They're inarticulate about their religious beliefs. They're inarticulate about why they do practices, if they have practices in their church. And they don't really know what role faith plays in their life. They were really inarticulate being able to even say what it mattered. Um, In fact, these researchers said that the dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers that were in church was something they called moralistic therapeutic deism. And what that is, is this basic belief that a God exists who created and orders the world and he kind of watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, which is taught in the Bible, but it's also taught by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem, and good people go to heaven when they die. They said this is like the faith of teenagers raised in church that are going out into the world. And I'm telling you, this faith will not stand. This faith will not stand up against the secular culture and the various things they're going to hear when they get out into the world and into college and so forth. So um, this is a problem about our kids. Now, you're probably like, and why did I come to this seminar? I'm so depressed, and I don't know what we're going to do. Well, the good news is I do believe there are things we can do. Now, none of these things I'm going to talk about are any kind of a guarantee. I have seen it in families that raise their kids the exact same way, where you have one that follows Christ, that loves the Lord, that is raising their family in the faith, that are faithful, devout followers of Jesus, and another has gone completely off and says it's all a bunch of hooey. I mean, good families. So I, I, there's no guarantees here, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that research has shown that will tip the scales perhaps more in the direction of our kids staying in the faith. And the first is to realize that parents do matter. And I want to say, um, and I unfortunately, I thought I had brought the quote, the research with me, but I left it behind. But there was some research done about grandparents. And one researcher had interviewed 500 kids, and he said, undoubtedly, having godly grandparents in their lives was definitely a component of their uh, faith and of staying in the faith. So grandparents, you are very important in your grandkids' lives. So just because you're like, well, that ship has sailed, my parenting days are over, um, it is, it, your job is not done. 
until God takes you home, you're still part of God's plan for our next generation. And if maybe your kid, your grandkids are nowhere near, maybe they're, you know, across the country somewhere, there's other ways to communicate, you know, learn how to do that FaceTime thing or, you know, just keeping in touch with your grandkids is very important so they know you love and care for them. And also think of the kids in your church. They are your younger brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they are being raised in this very difficult time of trying to decide what, what to think about this faith. And you can be an influence in their lives, just by tell, even just by telling your own story and your own walk with the Lord. So in the research, parents um, continue to be the single greatest influence on their children's faith. Um, all the research shows, 35-year study of families uh, focused on the question of how religion is passed across generations, and parents uh, are the, still the single greatest influence. So, and there's all kinds of really interesting studies done about that um, in terms of, you know, were the parents, did they stay together, were they divorced? It's, it's amazing how those things tend to correlate um, so there's, you can go on to Werner Wallace or the Fuller Youth Institute has more, or some of the books that I'll recommend have more information about that. Uh, but this is a very biblical principle anyway. In Ephesians, it says, parents, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That is our job as parents and as grandparents as part of that family. So how do we do that? Well, again, I know some of you are past this, but maybe you can pass some of this on to your own kids who are raising your grandkids. First and foremost is to create a home environment of warmth and grace and unconditional love uh, because in that 35-year study, the, the family warmth and closeness was more correlated with faith transmission than any other relational factor. So it's not even about, you know, if you just add up how much time is spent or whatever, but this, the, the sense that a kid gets that my, we're, I'm close to my mom and dad, I'm close to my brothers and sisters, we have family warmth, um, that is a huge factor in faith transmission, which is very, very interesting. So what does it mean to have a warm family? It's a family where you, you talk about things. I, in our family, um, telling our kids we're sorry uh, when we blew it. Because as parents, did you ever blow it as a parent? You know, you, you, you went on, you know, your temper got the better of you. You said something to your kid that you shouldn't have said. You know, we fail. And to be honest about that with our children, even when they're very young, starting when they're very young, I think is a real component of warmth. Because otherwise you start building distance, especially when you get to the teen years. It's so, you, you're, you're in potential conflict all the time as these Juveniles, these adolescents are changing from children into adulthood, and there's the, all those awkward years where they're figuring, trying to figure that out, and you're trying to figure out how to parent them, and it's so easy to make mistakes. I always tell, told my oldest son, I said, I'm so sorry, but you're the first one I've ever had of that age. You know, I did a little better with the other two because I kind of knew what was coming, but with you, it was all new. You know, I really didn't know. And one of the mistakes I made with my oldest son, and that I've now rectified, but um, is when he, I mean, he had a very high voice as a little boy, 
you know, really high little voice. And one night it was like, good night, Mom. And the next morning it was like, good morning, Mom. I'm like, oh. he just like changed into this adult before my eyes. And I, I realized I started treating him more as a, a man than my little boy. And I kind of quit that, the hugging that I had always done with my kids. I didn't make that mistake with my younger son. And even to this day, we, we hug each other a little more comfortably than my older son and I do. We still, we do hug, because I'm like, I'm going, you know, that is important to me. But I, re I realized when I hug my youngest son, because we never stopped hugging, that there's a warmth there that um, is really, really important. So that physical hug is really, even when you're, in the throes of those um, difficult times with your with teens, if any of you have teens, um, or if you have grandkids, so so saying you're sorry, saying things like I appreciate, I see this in you, you are such a gift, um, you know God has blessed me. Those those kind of things, saying things like that, really create family warmth. Technology can steal family warmth. Would you agree? Yeah, because if we're all on our little phones, uh, it's amazing, you know how it. I was just at Disneyland a few days ago, and it's just amazing how everybody's at Disneyland and everybody's on their phone, you know, when that's the time when the family can be together, you know, it's just, it is our brave new world, right? Um, second um, is to bring your children into your faith life, um, and, or your grandchildren into your faith life. Do they see that faith is a central focus of your life, that following Jesus and, 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 and your, your um, focus on the kingdom of God, that it, that it has made a complete difference in how you live your life, is, or is church just an add-on? We don't really talk about it. We don't really do anything about it all week long. We just go to church on Sunday. We believe when we go to heaven, Jesus has taken care of that. Is there more relevance to faith than just going to heaven when you die? Kids need to know that it's more relevant than that. Do they see you sacrificing? Have you, um, even with your grandkids, talked about how walking with the Lord has made a difference in what you do with your money? I mean, we used to actually show our kids, um, look, we're, this is how much we're giving here, we're, we're supporting this child, we're doing this. We do all these things and, and so we don't have as much money to do maybe other things or buy other things, but we believe that these are really important to Jesus. And so that's what we do. Do they see that? Are, are you bringing them in to your faith life? Do they know your story of your ups and downs in the faith? I think it's really important to do that. Um, oh, this is a great quote. Uh, this is a Barna report that says, um, children who grow up regularly talking about faith and seeing their parents integrate faith into everyday life are much more likely to continue being actively engaged in their faith as they grow older. In other words, parents, grandparents, who are eager to talk with their kids about spiritual matters raise kids who are likewise eager. And it becomes normal to talk about spiritual matters. And that way, when they do have questions, they know who they can talk to about spiritual matters. Um, so it's very important that there's um, uh, that bringing them into your faith life and making space for regular conversation. Even if you're a grandparent, when you're with those grandkids, how are you opening up space 
for there to be substantial dialogue. Now, in our family, with my kids growing up, it was about family dinner. That was like a sacred time. We tried, Renee always tried to be home for dinner. And even though dinner might only be a half an hour long, it's, you know, it wasn't like we sat at the table for two hours or something. It would be short. But it was opportunity to ask questions of our kids, you know, what are you, what are you hearing in school? You know, or they could ask questions of us. In fact, I remember distinctly one um, spaghetti dinner night and Jonathan, out of the blue, because spiritual conversation was normal in our family, um, asking the question, so how do we know Jesus really rose from the dead anyway? Now, that is a great question. And, and everybody should ask that question because I don't know about you, but in my experience, that's not normal. My, my, when I go visit the cemetery of my forebears, they're still in the grave. You know? So resurrection, even though they, he grew up with that idea that Jesus rose from the dead, at some point he kind of goes, he did what? And how do we know he did that? Now, what I, first thing I said is, that's a great question. That's an awesome question. I'm so glad you're thinking about that because it's a good question to ask. Now, here are some reasons that I think he really did rise from the dead. And it wasn't, you got to just have faith. Obviously, ultimately, we, ha- we, we, rely, we have to have faith. But there are evidences that, that bolster our faith in that area. Now, if your grandkid or your kid asks you that question, are you ready? What would, you, what would your three things you would say why you think Jesus really did rise from the grave? What evidence is there that that really happened? Now, I think I got through maybe three things with Jonathan. He was in middle school. And that was enough. It wasn't like we had to get out N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God book that's like 500 pages long and go through it page by page. I had some answers for him. And they was like, oh, that's cool. Pass the Parmesan, you know, and it was done. He, he had gotten enough. You don't have to belabor it. But it, he, he asked a question. He got some answers. But it was because we were together in a place where there was no phones allowed at the table and we could have a conversation. So making space for regular conversation. One of my most precious times was with my youngest son. He just did not want to drive. Can you believe it? A boy who is not down at the DMV at age 15 and a half and one hour getting his <laughs> permit. But he was just like, yeah, I'm just, he just didn't want to drive. So he was my last, and here he is in high school, junior, senior, and I'm still driving him to school because his school was actually quite a ways away. And at first I'm like, I don't want to be driving. I've been driving kids to school for <laughs> forever. I want to be done. But then I realized I got a captive teenager in the car for 20 minutes to and from school every single day. And we had some of the most amazing conversations in the car because he was taking a philosophy class and I'd go, hey, you know, what'd you talk about in your philosophy class today? What'd you think about that? You know, and, and just, it was time, again, space for these conversations to take place. So I think it's really important whether you have kids or grandkids Make that space for regular, make spiritual conversation something that's just normal. All right. Also, I think making it clear that questions and doubts are okay is really important. I've 
heard people say, yeah, when I had questions, I was told either just have faith or it's sinful to even ask questions like that. And we have to, that has to be off the table for us. We have to say, you can ask any question that you have about God, about faith, about the church, about anything that has to do with what we're, t- what we're t- trying to tell you is true. You can ask questions about it. And if, if you don't know the answer to questions, I think it's good to be honest and go, you know what? I have actually never really thought of that question. It's a good question, but it's not something that's ever bothered me. Like, for instance, some people are really bothered by the problem of suffering and pain and evil in the world. How could a good God allow it? And there are other people that they just don't really struggle with that. They're like, it's because human beings are human beings, and God has given us the freedom to live our lives, and human beings have, are the ones that bring about all the evil and despair and destruction in the world. So they don't really have a problem, but other people really wrestle with it. Like, if God could do something, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he do it now? Why, you know, why would he delay? So whatever their question is, I think it's really important to say, that's a good question. I, you know, I've never really thought about it, but let me do a little homework. Let me see if I can find something for you to read or... You know, you know, I know somebody who that's what, the, what they love to talk about and maybe put them together. So it, it's very important to acknowledge the doubt. Let them come up with those doubts and questions. I asked my, my now 21-year-old a few years ago, I said, where are you in your faith life? I mean, what are your biggest questions? Because he had not one but two friends, actually now three, that have completely left the faith. Um, well, one is kind of kind of hanging in there, maybe a little, but um, two definitely gone. And I said, well, where are you? You know, this has got to be hard for you. These are your best friends growing up. And you guys, this, this family was a homeschool family. They were, you know, full on committed. And for this, you know, I said, where are you? He goes, well, he goes, you know, I still believe in Jesus. I still, you know, want to follow him. I have, I have some things that don't make a lot of sense to me. He goes like, hell, I, I, I don't know that I really understand that. And I, I'm, I'm struggling with that. I'm like, okay, that's, that's good, you know? That's okay. That's a good thing to struggle about. If you don't struggle about hell, then you have no compassion, <laughs> you know, to, to go, yeah, yeah, of course there's a hell. Um, all those people who don't accept, you know, these are difficult questions for our kids and we need to acknowledge that. So just make it clear that they're okay. With teens especially, ask questions and listen. Teens especially need to know that they're being heard and young adults. They don't, they, they, they don't want your, they're not coming to you for a lecture, okay? So learn some kind of Socratic method. I think Greg Kokel has a book called Tactics where he teaches you, he calls it the Columbo method, but he teaches you how to ask probing questions. So when they make some statement like, well, now I don't believe there's a God. You don't just go, well, let me tell you all the reasons there is a God. You go, well, what, how did you come to that conclusion? And what was your thinking that led to that? You know, and then you keep asking questions, and a lot of times you'll find, they'll realize they don't really have, they haven't really thought it through, you know, and it can maybe lead to some, some good... Um, you know, some good progress. So asking questions, listening is really good. And then also prayer. 
You know, as grandparents, um, especially, are you down on your knees praying for your grandkids? They are entering a world that is more difficult than the one you entered as a young adult in order to be a Christian. Pray for them. Um, uh, Pray for them every day. I do believe that the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, as we're told in the Bible. So pray. Number two, so this is about parents mattering and the kind of the things you can do, but let's also look at a few other things that we can do. And this one is research, doing your homework. I know a lot of you are like, what? You know, I, my college days are over, my study days are over. Um, but I'm telling you, the four spiritual laws booklet is not going to do it anymore. Not in this world that we're in. It's just not enough to kind of know the Roman road or something. Those are, those are fine. But in this day and age, with the questions and the access to stuff that our kids have, we have to go way beyond that. Um, there's a lot of bad information out there. And there's a lot of tactics that I've seen very common with like atheist bloggers where they caricaturize the Christian faith. They kind of set up this straw, what's known as a straw man. And they, they say, yeah, you know, the Christian God, you know, he would, he would send his own son. You know, that's child abuse to send your own son to die. And, and then Christians, they take bread and, and wine, and it's supposed to be the blood and body of Jesus. That's like cannibalism. You know, so they, they take things that are sacred and, and that have long and deep theology to them, and they simplify them in these crass ways, and then they put it out there, and suddenly you're reading this. Even someone like me who, you know, I'm have a degree in theology, you kind of go like, oh, I don't want to be associated with that, <laughs> you know, because the way they present it, uh, that it's just so stupid that anyone would believe this medieval stuff. And this is the kind of thing your kids have access to all the, just in an instant. And the social media and the links and everything, they just, they have access to this stuff, your, and your grandkids. Um, so in order to be ready to discuss hard questions, you know, it's not the Sunday school teacher's job. It's not the youth teacher's I think it's families. We as families, as moms and dads and grandparents, we are the ones that need to be ready to answer our kids' tough questions about faith. I'm going to be really passionate here about doing homework. I have people tell me, well, I, you know, I don't have time to read. But it's amazing that we can all binge watch The Crown and have seen all the episodes or some other thing that we really like to watch or seen, you know, all all the sporting events that we want to watch. You know, we do have time for things that we think are our priorities, for things that are important to us. We do have time. And I believe that reading and studying is a discipline. I believe it's a spiritual discipline to take time, um, even for your own growth, to read not just novels, but to read things that, that um, improve your, you know, and lead you in your walk with the Lord. Uh, we've become, I think, very lazy in our reading. And um, I think that needs to change. And I think um, that we need more believers who are willing to take time to read and study for the sake of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, for the sake of those young people sitting in your church or your grandparents Hi there. Hello. Is he cute? 
He'll find his way out, no worries. <laughs> we'll open up the, the back doors later on. Um, there's more resources. This is the good news, is that there are more resources now than ever before, including online. I mean, online can be the pit, or it can be amazing resources, you know? So let's use those amazing resources that are available. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, more of those as we, as we... Oh my goodness, we're almost done, aren't we? 1210, okay. Um, so I'll just mention a few of those resources. But one book that is really good that I'd recommend... Um, so the next generation will know is uh, written by it's brand new out by um, Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell, and basically he says in here, look, love sacrifices, and love um, takes the time to understand. And if you don't understand this younger generation, they have a great synopsis in here of Generation Z and what their worldview is and what their lives are like. It's a great synopsis. And also like tools for you, like how are you going to be part of making sure that the next generation is one that has all the opportunities to have their questions answered and to move forward in faith following the Lord. Um, let me just whisk through these um, to remember it's about the gospel. We do not accept old earth creation as our Lord and Savior. We accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The gospel has to be center. We, it's not a moralism that they're accepting. It's Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it allows room for kids to explore questions maybe about Genesis. Believe it or not, there are really good Jesus-loving Christians that fall all over the spectrum about young earth, old earth, ID, theistic evolution. There's a lot of, out there by really good Christians. And so we cannot say, unless you believe this way, you cannot be a Christian, when that is not the bar set by Jesus. It's, do you trust me? Do you, can you put your trust in me? And that is got to be front and center. So it's about the gospel. It's not about the peripheral issues. It's not about moralism. It's not about a political party. It's about Jesus. We've got to keep that center. And then rethink ways to connect young people to the church community. Um, what they have found is that in churches, um, in, in studies, that you really need what they call a five-to-one ratio. That means five adults that a kid knows as they're growing up in church. Not just family, not, not aunt and uncles, but like people in the church community that they know they care about them. They will ask them, how did your test go? I was praying for you. It's not necessarily a grandparent, but it's, but it's just people that they have a sense that I am in a, a family, a bigger family than just my little family that comes to church. That these are all people that care about me. My kids had this. It was inadvertent on my part. We had a group of friends who all like to watch football. And so starting when my kids were really little, every Sunday in the fall after church, we would get together for lunch, watch football. The kids would play together. And my kids got to know all these other adults really well, including one single woman who I found out later when my kids were teenagers, she was the one that they would go and ask questions and, and ask for advice about certain things that they weren't coming to me. When my, son, my oldest son was thinking of breaking up with his girlfriend, he didn't come to me. He went to this other woman um, who, was his, who was like an aunt to him. 
you know, I mean, like a family member because he had grown up with her in our, our lives and he felt safe going and talking to her. So having those other adults in their lives is really, really important. And the second thing is how can we... Um, really integrate young people into the life of the church. You know, when, you, when I was growing up, when there would be a big dinner at our house, there was a kid's table and an adult table. Did you have that ever or do that to your kids? And, you know, there comes a point where you don't want to sit at the kiddie table anymore, right? You get to a certain age, you're like, I have to sit with the little kids? I'm 14, you know? You don't want to sit. And I think sometimes we keep our young people out of... The, the heart ministry of our church, the major ministries of our church, far too long. We need to integrate them sooner, earlier, into really important roles. Uh, I'm not saying that they should you know, be a pastor at 15 or something, but I'm just saying, where can we integrate them? Not just in their youth group, but into the full life of the church. We need to be rethinking that. So let me just... Um, in the like one minute I have left, um, I have given you a ton of resources, and I wish I had more time to go through some of these. If you want to ask me about it afterwards, I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, maybe, uh, is Dave, is lunch at 1230? 1230? Would you mind if I went five more minutes? Would that be? Because you don't have kids to go pick up, right? <laughs> That's usually family camp. It's like, I got to go get my kids down. Okay, so I'm going to just do five more minutes. I'm sorry, but we, but we just got started a little late. But um, to just these resources are so important. So um, I, I brought a few of them with me here. Sticky Faith. This would be a great one if you've got grandkids to give your kids wonderful ideas about um, how to build lasting faith in your kids in your everyday home life. Again, these are most of these I've asked the bookstore to have in stock. So this is a really wonderful book written by Dr. Kara Powell. Um, so I already mentioned, so the next generation will know, preparing young Christians for a challenging world. Excellent material in there. Mama Bear Apologetics. What I love about this book is it's not just answering questions that kids might have about, you know, how can we believe in a hell or the resurrection or whatever, but it's big cultural lies that your kids are, are just surrounded with or your grandkids every day. Things like um, there is no truth or you just have to live your own truth. Um, I saw that on a t-shirt at Disneyland. Live your truth. Live your truth. Um, you're wrong to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, follow your heart because it never lies. Um, you know, this would be a great book for a mom's group. You know, you, again, something to give your daughter or daughter-in-law as she's raising kids because if we don't talk to our kids about these cultural messages they're getting nonstop, if we don't help them become critical thinkers and to go, wait a minute, this is telling me this, but here's the reality of how that actually works out in life to live your own truth. If we aren't teaching them critical thinking skills, we're going to lose them. Um, two books that I constantly recommend. These should be like required reading for every believer. <laughs> Timothy Keller. Thank you, Lord, for Timothy Keller. He's a gift to the church, really. Um, he was a pastor in Manhattan for 30 years. And he just, he, he studies culture. He studies cultural trends. 
and he knows how to communicate in really clear ways what the gospel is all about. So he wrote two books, Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical, is really for people who haven't, it's not that they have questions about Christianity, they're just like, I'm not even to thinking there's a God, you know. So um, he goes into all those human needs that we have for meaning and for identity and for freedom, and he shows what the secular culture, how the secular culture tells us we can have all these things without God, and he shows how it miserably fails and how really only in God can we have meaning and satisfaction and actually freedom. It's very counterintuitive to say when I lose my life is when I find it. But that's what he shows in this book. So um, making sense of God. And then reason for God takes the most common objections to the Christian faith that he got as a pastor, deals with those questions, and then he lays out a positive case for faith in the second half. So both of these books, reason for God, um, making sense of God are awesome. Um, brand new book out called um, Confronting Christianity. This is written by a millennial woman. So there's all kinds of credibility going on here. If you've got a teenage grand uh, daughter or grandson, this is, they're going to have a little more credibility. Uh, just the way she writes is more in a millennial way. Um, this won Christianity Today's 2020 Book of the Year Award. Um, she de- takes what she considers to be the 12 strongest objections to the Christian faith and addresses them, including isn't Christianity homophobic? Um, it's an amazing chapter because she herself um, struggles with same-sex attraction. She's married to a man with, and she has children, but she talks about her whole journey and how she decided that that was the, how she was going to live her life despite attractions that she had. So it's a, she, again, the credibility here is off the charts because she is living this. So, you know, doesn't religion cause violence? How can you take the Bible literally? 12, really great. She's super smart, millennial woman. Really recommend that book as well. Her name is Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca McLaughlin. She lives in Boston, but she's from, originally from the UK. Um, And then let me just highlight um, in the middle of that page, uh, well, Meet Gen Z, that's a great book, again, Understanding the Young Culture. But you see where it says The Bible Project? It's underlined, I think. And um, I'm a huge fan of The Bible Project. Maybe your problem is like, you know, let alone answering their tough questions about faith. I really don't know the Bible that well. I wish I really understood the Bible better. The Bible Project, or for your kids or your grandkids to watch, it's amazing. Um, So it's a wonderful resource. They've taken every book of the Bible and have have gone over the big picture of what this book is about with drawings, and it's just so creative. It's also done by millennials, so it's super hip, and um, it's a wonderful resource that I'd like to recommend to you. And I've given you resources for younger kids here as well because you have to start early. I would, you know, with my grandsons, one is three. I mean, by the time he's four, I've already got some books that we're going to be doing together. Um, Some wonderful books for littler kids. Like, for instance, Why God? Big Answers About God and Why We Believe in Him. It's written for ages four to eight. 
Because already we need to introduce this idea that there are reasons we believe that there is a God. It's not just blind faith. So um, lots of resources. If you have any question about those resources, feel free to ask me. The bookstore has a lot of them. Um, let me close in prayer um, so you can get on your way to lunch. Lord, we can be so discouraged by the trends. And for those of us with kids and grandkids, it's, it's scary to think that our kids or grandkids might walk away from the faith. You are on your throne. You are the Lord. You will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We believe that. Um, and, and yet I know that as faithful followers and, and soldiers in your kingdom, we have a job to do. Will you help us? Will you give us the courage to pick up books that might seem too hard and give us insights into how we can talk to our grandkids or talk to young people um, about their questions of faith? Lord, we know that there's so much out there that can equip us, but ultimately is your spirit working through us that can get the job done. And so, Lord, we are willing vessels to do that. And I just pray your blessing on these folks as they go out and are... Um, Followers of you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.